All right. Well, um, yeah, as you guys know, um, and in our sister Sammy prayed uh, last week was our college pastor's uh, last week with us, he and his family, uh, they got called out to uh, another ministry in the church, and we were just so blessed to be able to commission them and to, uh, to love them through that process. So as a result, um, I've been spending more time with our college students lately. Um, and so I do the usual, like, hey, what's up? What's your name? I'm probably going to forget it, but still, I want to go through all the, like, the pleasantries. And then I'll ask, like, oh, where, where do you go to school? And, and, and I get excited when, when I hear that they go to my alma mater, the greatest school on the West Coast, USC. And, and so when they say they go to USC, my first question is always, do you go to the football games? You know, do you go to the football games? And the overwhelming response from our college students is no. Like, I don't go to the football games. And I'm like shocked. My heart, like, I, like, I have nothing else to say to them. I'm like, oh, do you eat the dorm food? Like, whatever. Um, and they say no, and, and, and that just breaks my heart because every year when I was a student, I bought the activity pass, and I went to as many games as I could, freshman to senior year, and I loved the experience. I still remember the very first time when I walked through, um, like, yeah, yeah, through the gateway into the Coliseum, and I just saw the flood of cardinal and gold, 90,000 people cheering. I hear the, 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 um, the fight song blaring. I learned I learned the lyrics as soon as I could so I could sing along versus just like clapping and like, you know, doing the, the victory sign. I like, I want to sing along. And, and I loved that experience. Um, and so like, to me, it's, it's like so weird to go to USC and not go to the football games. I'm like, man, there's, you're in like, you know, Compton. There isn't that much else to do. Go to the football games. Um, and then I asked, why don't you guys go? Like, why don't you go to the football games and they just don't seem too interested. They say, oh, you know, I'm too busy. Oh, college students are too busy, okay? Um, and then they'll say, you know what, the team's no good. And I'm like, that is true. Right? Like, like that, that we're, yeah. And they say their friends don't go either. And then they say it's too expensive. Um, and, you know, I, I, I guess, like, if they're going to be that indifferent, it makes sense. Uh, SC honestly hasn't had a good season since 2008. Um, and so... It still breaks my heart, though, when there's that much indifference from USC college students towards the USC program. And it tells me, like, they don't know the greatness of USC. They don't know the history, the different Heisman quarterbacks, all the national championships, all the Rose Bowl. They don't know the, the glory of Troy. The former glory, though, here's a problem. The former, the former glory, it means nothing to them. Because today, they're so bad. Like, last, last night, they got thumped by Alabama, 52 to 6. 52 to 6, kind of bad. So I understand when the college students don't care about the history. They don't care about the past. They don't care about 2008, which is the last Rose Bowl we won, right? They're like, we, we suck now, and so they're not going to go. Now, the reason why I shared that illustration um, is because we're looking at Genesis 1 and 2 today. And what we're actually doing is we're going to focus on God's creation of humanity, of Adam and Eve, before the fall. And too often, we fail to remember the former glory of creation. We fail to remember the former glory of, of God's design, God's handiwork, God's creating Adam and Eve um, because we're just blinded. We're blinded by the failure 
that we experience. We're, we're blinded by the pain we see in, in the world. We're, we're, blinded, we're blinded by the brokenness we see in our communities. So yes, I just used USC football as an allegory for the fall, which is something I've never done. But I hope that makes sense. I hope that makes sense. We fail to see the glory of God's creation because we're blinded by the pain, the darkness of our lives and our world today. Now, um, the things are, are, are so bad, they, they just don't seem to get, be getting any better. I mean, just ask somebody who's working on the front lines of society today. Maybe it's a police officer. Maybe it's a social worker, a public defender. People who can't afford their own lawyers, but are in legal, like, yeah, in legal trouble. And, and ask them, like, what is our culture like? What's our community like? What, what's it like to, to defend, you know, underprivileged people? Um, ask an ER doctor, you know, what's the state of this world? And they'll probably tell you some of the saddest, darkest, most disturbing stories. It only takes one news cycle. Turn on the news. It only takes one news cycle to remind us that our world is full of violence, injustice, natural disasters, whether it's in our country or abroad, so on and so forth. So what do we do, church, friends? What do we do in response? I mean, we can turn off the TV, right? You can turn on Instagram and hope that nothing pops up that bums you out. Uh, we can go shopping for some retail therapy. We can go on a vacation. Just say, you know, life is just too depressing. I need to go to Hawaii to get some rainbows, sunshine, and shaved ice and make myself feel better. You can watch the latest show on Netflix. And all of these things we can use to try to medicate, medicate our hearts, medicate the pain. But you know what happens? None of that brings us peace, does it? Does your vacation reorder the world for you? Right? Does what you just bought at the mall make the fact that you have a loved one dying of cancer make everything better? It doesn't. It doesn't. What do we do? What do we do when we face the darkness, when we face the brokenness? Matt Chandler, uh, he's a pastor out in Dallas, Texas, of a great church called the Village Church. Uh, he was reflecting upon this tension and this truth. Uh, he put it well, and I'm going to throw the quote up on the screen, hopefully. This is what he says. In the beginning is where we need to start because we'll always find it hard to understand our dysfunction unless we understand what it means to function. We won't be able to make sense of our chaos and disorders without seeing what true order from God really looks like. We can never grasp the extent of our depravity until we recognize the excellencies of our created dignity. Okay. I like that. I really appreciated that. The fact that he's just saying, we will never understand, we'll never be able to comprehend and come to grips with our dysfunction unless we understand what it means to function. What does it mean to be a healthy, thriving, flourishing human being? A man and a woman, a father and a mother, a student, a son and a daughter, a child of God. What in its, what in its you know, unblemished, pure, divinely designed state, what does that look like? And if we don't know, from where will we get hope? How will we be able to construct our families in a way that really does reflect God if we don't understand his design, understand his function, understand 
the created dignity that he's given all of us. According to um, humans, we, we love this quote, to err is human. Have you guys heard that? To err is human. It's a, a poet named Alexander Pope. He wrote that, but the problem is he got it wrong. If we think that humanity is defined by error, if we think that humanity is defined by sin, we haven't read Genesis 2. We haven't read Genesis 1. No, that might define our present context, but that doesn't, that doesn't reflect our God's design, our God's purpose. See, after God created Adam, he didn't look at Adam and say, man, you are full of errors. No, after God created Adam, he looked at Adam and all of creation and he says, it is very good. It is very good, not full of error. And so this week with today's sermon, what we're going to do, we're going to look at what the Bible tells us about humanity before the fall. Humanity before the fall. And then next week, uh, we're going to look at the fall of humanity, how we fell, how we got here, right? But we need to know where we came from. What did we fall from? And I, and I want us to look at that. And I have one main question I want to answer today in the message, and it's simply this. How did God create humanity to function and flourish? Okay. How did God design humanity to function and flourish? What did, what did we look like or what would we look like? What could life be like if we never fell? If Eve and Adam never ate that fruit from the, knowledge of the, tree, uh, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Man, what would original design look like? And we want to think upon that. And uh, I hope that that would shape our understanding of ourselves, uh, one another, and uh, of God as well. And so uh, there's three answers to this question. What did humanity look like before the fall? How did God create us to function and flourish? And the first answer is this. God created us in his image for a relationship with him. That's the answer. That's the first one. God created us in his image for a relationship with him. We're going to read Genesis 1, 26 to, uh, it's, it's, I'm going to chop up a couple passages, so uh, we'll go from there. May God bless the reading of his holy and good word. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And we're going to skip down to Genesis 2, verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the earth, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Amen. Amen. Um, we're going to look specifically at what it means to be created in the image of God. And how does this empower and fuel and direct a relationship uh, with him? Well, to be created in the image of God, it's a beautiful, beautiful um, it's a beautiful phrase, beautiful concept, but if I asked each and every one of us, it's probably a little vague, isn't it? It sounds good. We, we might even use it in an answer. Like, why do humans have dignity? Because we're created in the image of God. And someone follows up, what exactly does that mean? And you're like, you know, 
image of God. You know, we're like, like God, like God cares for us and he made us. And so we're not like a dog, we're like him. And it, it, it's like that. I found that to be the case. Well, what, what I want to do today is um, help clarify, crystallize, and just fill out this ever important concept, this, this, this humanity defining concept for each and every one of us. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? And there's, there's four quick things I want to share about that biblical truth. First, to be created in the image of God tells us that we are set apart from the rest of creation. We are set apart, utterly different and distinct from the rest of creation. God spoke the cosmos into being. He created all plant and animal life and everything was ordered according to their kinds. We talked about that last week when we looked at Genesis 1. And after every day, he says, it's good. It's good. He loved everything that he created. But when it came to humanity, the narrative of creation slows down. See, up until then, it's like day one, God said, let there be light, and there was light. Boom. And then it just goes, day one, two, three, four, and God creates the heavens and the earth, right? The plants, the, the, the waters, separates the waters, and all of these things go on, and it's just in this like formula. It's, it's really rigid. And then you get to Genesis 1, verse 26, 27, 28, and the whole thing slows down. The whole thing slows down. Why? It's because Moses, the author of Genesis, is telling us there's something different. God creating like a pineapple and God creating a porcupine is not the same as God creating mankind. And so he slows the narrative down. Did you know that animals and man were actually both created on the sixth day? On the sixth day, they were both created and the animals just get the same treatment as everyone else. But when God created man, God explains his thoughts. Why did he do it? What's his purpose? What's he thinking? And then God actually says how he did it. For everyone else, God just spoke it into being. Let there be, right? Let there be. But God explains how he created Adam by forming him up from the dust, by breathing his life into his nostrils. There's something so special and distinct about mankind. And that's the first thing we need to recognize that to be created in the image of God sets us apart from all of creation. We are the crown of creation and we're not just calling ourselves the crown of creation. God, God has bestowed that privilege and beauty and value upon us. Now, what's the implication of this? The implication is this. We have to reject the naturalistic claim that we're the product of brute evolution. We have to reject the claim that we're just simply more advanced than a monkey, than an ape, than a chimpanzee. We're just more, we're more sentient and sympathetic than a dolphin and, and, and a goat, whatever it might be. We, we are not just part of the animal kingdom. No, God has created us to reign over the animal kingdom, to steward over and have dominion over the animal kingdom. So that's the implication of the first one. Second, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? Not only that we're set apart, but here's a kind of a tricky word. Uh, it's theomorphic. We are theomorphic. And what this, what this means simply is that we were made like God so that God can communicate himself to us. Okay, that's what it means to be theomorphic. We were made like God so that God can communicate with us, so that God could have a relationship with us. 
to be able to know him, to be able to experience him, to be able to enjoy him as our creator far beyond any rock, tree, or animal ever could. Do you guys get that? Like the, the animal kingdom, the rest of the universe cannot sing the songs that we sing. At best, a flower will just open up and say, mm, you know? At best, a dog or a wolf will just howl at the moon and say, oh, you know, God, you're awesome. But the rest of creation cannot enjoy and delight in our creator in the same way we can. Why? Why is ours different? Why is our worship different? Why is our relationship with God different? Because we are theomorphic. We were made by God to be like God, to be able to relate to God, okay? Um, how does God do this? How did God make us like him? How did God make us, yeah, uh, yeah in his image, and here's the, here's the answer. It's by endowing humanity with his communicable attributes, okay? Uh, this is a little bit of systematic theology, but it's super simple. The church, uh, God has all these different attributes. You know, his omnipotence, he, he's almighty. Omniscience, he knows everything. But God is always lo also love, and he's also kind, and he's also good. So God has all of these attributes, but the theologians have been able to categorize them into two categories, communicable and incommunicable. And communicable means that these are the attributes of God that God can share with us. And the incommunicable ones are the ones that God will not share and cannot share with us. So an incommunicable attribute is omnipresence. God is everywhere. Well, the problem is you and I cannot experience that. Right, guys? Right? God is self-existing. He is the uncreated one. The problem is you and I, we had to be created. So these are incommunicable ones. When we talk about God is infinite, he's the alpha and the omega. Sorry, God, you know, that's not us, right? So that is God setting himself apart. But God has all, the, all of these communicable ones to be good, to be just, to be loving, to be merciful, to be kind, to be gracious. And then those words, those attributes of God, they connect with us, don't we? Even your children, your little toddlers know injustice, right? If you have two kids and you give one kid a popsicle, another one like a rock, they will not be happy. The, the rock kid will cry out injustice. Even if she's only two years old, she will know that the older sibling got something way better than what she got. Right? Why? Because in our souls, God has communicated to us a sense of justice, goodness, rightness, wrongness, good and evil. Right? And so that's what it means for us to be created in the image of God, to be able to experience and know and enjoy his attributes, the ones that he's been able to share with us. Um, please don't be offended. Please don't be offended. Uh, my wife and I, uh, we've been married three years. We don't have any kids yet, but we have this awesome dog. We have this awesome dog. Her name is Piper. We love her so much. And yet a lot of our friends, I'm like going on 35 this month. A lot of our friends have like kids and babies, toddlers and whatever it might be. And we hang out. And honestly, I'm like, I'm so selfish. I'm like, dude, Piper's way better behaved than those kids. <laughs> like, like they're crying all day at the restaurant, will not stop. And my dog, like, you know, when you first meet her, she like goes hyper. And then after that, she's quiet. She sits on the couch. You know, I feed her some watermelon. She's good. She's quiet. But, but my ability to connect to my dog, 
to know my dog, to communicate with my dog, to relate, to know. I, can't, I don't even know what my dog's thinking. The other day, Alice, my wife, was like, dude, it'd be so cool if Piper could talk. I'm like, yeah. It's like, get a kid, because kids learn how to talk. Kids learn how to speak, and it's cool because parents see the development, the growth, and the more they grow, the more you can communicate. The more they grow in their cognitive language, emotional abilities, the more you, you can know them and enjoy them and have a relationship with them, right? That is, that's how this is functioning for us. As theomorphic creatures, right? God has created us so that we might be able to grow and to know him to enjoy him at deeper, greater levels, right? In the same way, parents, you've seen your kids grow. You know, they're, at first they're only crying, but then they start using words and then sentences and ideas, and you're like, oh my gosh. And then you see your likeness in them. Well, we were created in the image of God, in the likeness of God, that we might have a relationship with him, right? Thirdly, uh, we see that to be created in the image of God, God establishes the dignity of all humanity. So, so important, guys. In the ancient Near East, pagan religions, they believed that someone could be created in the image of God. But you know who these people were? They were the kings. These pagan religions believed that only the king bore the image of God. And so the king or the emperor had the divine right to rule over his people. So you could be Caesar, right? And Caesar will say, I bear the image of God or you could be an Egyptian pharaoh, or you could be a Persian emperor. And all of these men claimed to have the image of God and it allowed them to, in selfish, tyrannical ways, lord over their people, lord over their kingdom. But what does the Bible tell us? The Bible tells us that all human beings, every man, woman, and child is created in the image of God. And what this does is this establishes dignity and democracy among all people. It's not just the powerful. It's not according to bloodline and privilege. No, if you are human, you have the image of God. You have the image of God. This is so important because if we really understand this, this creates the baseline for human ethics that regardless of your gender, regardless of your race, regardless of your creed or your socioeconomics, we value in the Christian biblical worldview, we value the dignity of all life because we are all created in the image of God. Whether you're a Muslim, Christian, Jewish, agnostic, whatever it might be, we have to be able to look at humanity and say, you are created in the image of God. There is dignity and value in you. Church, do you, do you see how the image of God shapes how we see ourselves? Do you see how it shapes how you relate to God and it also shapes how you respect others. Now, I want to ask you, just think about your own life and your own kind of like optics from how you see the world. Where is the image of God most veiled in your life? Where is the image of God most broken, most shattered in your life? If you are suffering from self-loathing, like self-destruction, and you think that you're worthless, right? If you think you're no good and, and you're not worth anything, that no one will ever love you, no one will ever accept you, well, God's image in you should remind you that you are precious, that you are beloved, that you are valuable. And if you reject God's image in you, you know what you're, you're rejecting? You're rejecting God himself. 
You're rejecting God's design because you hate yourself so much. You have such a low view of yourself. That means you have a low view of God. And so the encouragement for you is to, to be able to receive the love and the dignity that God has for you when he created you. Wonderfully, marvelously made. Well, if you're self-centered, right? If you're kind of like, oh, you know, you know what? I like, I see the image of God in me. Like I have all the, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. But you kind of find yourself as a very self-centered person and you kind of do your own thing. And you're not focused on glorifying God, serving God. You really want to build up the kingdom of Michael or the kingdom of Christine or Grace or whatever it might be. Um, God's image should remind you that you are not created for yourself. That God's image should remind you that you were created to have a relationship with a creator, to be able to know him, to serve him and experience him. And so if your optics are all kind of like just focused on a mirror, and you just look at yourself and you serve yourself and want to improve yourself and comfort yourself, well, what God's image needs to do is lift your eyes up to the heavens and allow you to realize, man, we were created for more, more than just self-service. Man, if you are also like indifferent towards others, if you actually find yourself as a bigot or a prejudiced person, or just like, you know, we, we see people in so much brokenness, so much pain, so much loss, they're begging for, for help, for food on the side of the road, and we just don't care anymore. What the image of God should, should do to us is remind us that we're called to love. We're called to serve. We're called to value. We're called to see the dignity in others. And this is the, this is the push. Not out of pity, okay? Not to give and to serve and reach out to others. Not out of pity, but out of human dignity, Okay? So even today, as, as Pastor DC shared about Hope Gardens and us, us serving underprivileged people, women and children who are living in a shelter because they're getting off the streets, it's such an amazing ministry that they have just up the street. Please do not serve them out of pity. Please don't think, oh my gosh, just one uniform, oh, pity. Would you serve them out of their dignity, that they were created out of the image of God? that they are precious, valuable, and it is our privilege to be able to love them and serve them and provide whatever resources we can, whether it's just a shirt from your closet or $20 to buy one uniform. Would you do it out of their dignity, the fact that they are created in God's image, not as a charity project? Amen? Amen. Thirdly, God has created us for community. So we talked about, hey, what does it look like? What does humanity look like before the fall, according to God's design, according to God's good and, and perfect plans? First, we said, um, uh, we're, we're uh, man, sorry, I just lost my place completely. Um, yeah, I, I was about to skip over an entire point. Sorry about that. Uh, first, it's the image of God. Next, we're going to talk about uh, fruitfulness in the world. Fruitfulness in the world, okay? Our... Uh, our, our, our experience, our relationship to the world. Genesis 1, 28. Uh, let's go there really quickly. Uh, it's going to go up on the screen as well, so that might help. And God blessed them, and that's humanity. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish and over the sea and over the birds and over the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 2, 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it, to work it and keep it. Do you recall what, what God did with all the animals in the Garden of Eden? 
right? Genesis tells us that he named them all, each according to their kinds. And so he observed and he interacted with them. And then he just started naming them. He's like, cow, chicken, pig, snake, right? And he should have crushed the snake, but he didn't, right? And so Adam is naming all of these animals. And by Adam naming the animals, you know what that symbolizes? It symbolizes his authority, right? His authority, his dominion, because that's what God wanted for Adam. God didn't name the animals. God wasn't like, pig. he's like, pig. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't doing that. Adam did it out of his own creativity, right? And, and, and so that's something we have to understand. We don't let other people name our own pets, right? We don't let other people name our own kids unless you have overbearing parents and they want to name your kids, maybe the Korean name or, or not. Um, no, you name your own. You name your own. And so God wanted Adam to name, name the animals. He wanted man to rule over creation. And though he wanted our rule, Adam's rule over creation to reflect God's rule over the earth. And so what does that mean? Well, we go back to the communicable attributes, right? Is Adam to just mutilate these animals for his own gain and for his own comfort? Is he supposed to devastate and just lay waste all these plants because he's a pyro? No, right? Adam's rule over creation should reflect God's rule over us. And so it should be good. It should be merciful. It should be just, right? It should be kind. It should be wise. And so this does two things. If we understand that, that our relationship to the world is one that reflects God's relationship to the world, and God is using us to work and to reign and have dominion over the world, it has two things. It keeps us from making an idol of creation, but it also reminds us to steward over creation. It keeps us from making an idol of creation. No, like over and over again in the Genesis account, God gave the plants to Adam. God gave the animals to Adam. God gave all of creation to Adam. So we should never worship creation. We should understand that God gave these things for us to enjoy and glorify him. But it should also make us good stewards. We should always be careful and we should care for creation. We should work in creation with justice, kindness, wisdom, and equity. Now, the second thing that we see from our passage is a biblical theology of work. Guys, did you know that work is, even though it feels like a punishment, work is not a result of the fall. Work is not a product of sin. Work is not a punishment from God. It's actually part of God's design. Look at verse 15 again. God put Adam in the garden to work it and keep it, right? God didn't just put Adam in the garden like we put a baby in a playpen, like in the cry room. We just put the baby in the fence and they just play, right? I think we think of Eden like that, that Adam and Eve are just naked and running around and just eating fruit and, and playing, right? Like, don't you just imagine that? They're just like chilling, talking to animals, whatever it might be. No, Genesis 1, no, yeah, 2.15 says, God took Adam, placed him in the garden to work it and keep it. Man, that is so different. That's so different from our conception of work, right? And God says they're working in it, and it was good. See, God created us. God created Adam and Eve and all of humanity to be productive, to be creative, to be fruitful people in our homes or in our workplaces. And this is why I don't believe, this is why I don't believe that heaven is going to be us floating around on clouds, playing harps, singing praise songs all day, right? 
Um, I used to think that. I'm sure all of us did at one point. We were like, yeah, that's what heaven's gonna be. We're just gonna be, we're gonna have our own cloud. We're gonna wear a white robe and we're just gonna play harps <laughs> all day, right? But I didn't know, like the actual, I didn't read the Bible when I was younger. And, and it's actually, the Bible tells us there's actually gonna be a new heavens and a new earth. And in the new earth, we're not just gonna sing songs all day. We're gonna work. But we're gonna work in a way that, that gives us joy, we're going to work in a way where the earth isn't fighting us back. We're going to work in a way where we're not going to break our backs to try and get productivity from our labors. No, we're going to work in a way that God has designed. And honestly, I don't know what that looks like, but it's going to be good. It's going to be sweet. Uh, that's what God has in store for us. And so this is why, because of this theology of work, not as a punishment, not as a product of the fall or sin, because we believe that Work is something God has given us, that God wants us to be fruitful. He wants us to be productive. He wants us to use our gifts and be creative. This is why the New Testament rebukes idleness, okay? If there is idleness in your life, whether it's in your homes, in your, in your personal times, in your stewardship, the Bible actually rebukes you and calls you out of your idleness and tells you to work, whether it's as a student, whether it's for your home and family, whether it's in a secular workplace, See, in the New Testament, in the Thessalonian church, they were just so obsessed with Jesus coming back. They like, people quit their jobs and they just hung out at church all day. They're like, Jesus is coming back. Why should I work, right? I actually told my mom that once. Uh, I was like really on fire for God after my sophomore year in high school. And I was like, if Jesus is coming back, why should I even study? I'm just gonna worship and serve him. And my mom like slapped me. She's like, he's no more, right? And I was like, oh, right? We've all fought it, Right? I mean, you thought just like, dude, Jesus is coming back. This is not worth the grad school, the debt, the, the 40 to 80 hours, whatever. But the Bible rebukes that attitude. Why? Because Christians were called to work. We are called to work. We're called to be fruitful, to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. We'll talk more about this uh, next week, but the basic idea is this. Our desire to create, produce, and work comes from God. There's so many of us, when you're too idle, don't you get like stir crazy? Don't you need to do something? Make something like, like even just at least clean the house or something like reorganize your desk or your car. You, you need to be productive in some way. Otherwise you start like despising yourself. Why? Because God wired us that way, okay? But sin makes work difficult. Sin is the reason why we can hate work. Sin is the reason why we hate Monday morning. Like that, that, that's just the, the reality, okay? Well, church, this is so important because so many of us, we divorce our vocational work from our service to God, okay? How many of you think, man, I do so much at work, I can't serve God enough? Or how many of you feel guilty because you do so much for your work, for your studies, for your programs, whatever it might be, and you're like, oh, but, oh, I don't do enough for God. I don't do enough at church. I spend 50 hours in the office, but man, I don't even spend five hours at church. And we feel guilty. And what we've done is we've divorced work from service to God. And what a theology of work and what God wants to tell us is no. Like that's not the way God's created us. He wants us to glorify him through our work. See, we wrongly think that serving God happens only at church. 
But that's not the case. When we understand Genesis 1 and 2, we understand that God has put us in our places, in our, uh, in, in our specific context to work, to be fruitful, to glorify him. And so friends, if you think that you, like, yeah, it's one or the other, you gotta break that false dichotomy. Otherwise, grace is not changing everything. Otherwise, there is no gospel centeredness to your life. You're only gonna think that, that sacred moments in church and in ministry and in small groups and on the mission field, those are the real moments and everything else is secular. But the gospel changes everything. Jesus wants to lord over your life in every sphere. And so that's why we need a healthy doctrine of, of work. So whether it's serving someone a great cup of coffee, whether it is teaching a, a child, a student, math and history, whether it's doing someone's taxes so they don't get hunted down by the IRS. Thank you, accountants. That's awesome, right? Building a home, offering medical care, whatever it might be. God wants us to work in goodness and in honesty. He wants us to work with joy for his glory and for the good of our community. It's not only Christian and kingdom when you're serving Christians. You can serve non-Christians for their good, for their benefit, and we are, we, we are reflecting the goodness of our God through our work. Well, church, um, we're, we're up against it with time, uh, and so I'm, I'm gonna end the sermon here. What do we do with our passage today? How do we recover what has been lost through the fall? Think about this. We've lost so much through the fall. We've lost our understanding of who we are as made in the image of God. We've lost our understanding of how to relate to the world. What is work and why does it suck so much and why do so many, many people hate it, right? Uh, like how do we understand our relationships to others? The last point was supposed to be about marriage and Adam and Eve and how the two have become one. It only takes a moment reflection, maybe upon your own life, maybe upon your own family, to realize there's so much brokenness in our families that we've gotten marriage wrong. All of these designs that God, our divine great architect, has laid out, they've been shattered. They've been broken by sin. Here's the good news, church. The good news is that the image of God in us, though it may be stained with sin, though it may be broken and shattered by our rebellion and, 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 and our pride, that image is not lost. And that image and, and, and the vision and the promises and the design that God has for us, it is not beyond redemption. And the good news is that we have a redeemer. We have someone who has come to restore the image of God in us, to restore the work, the purposes and the design of God in us, in our families, in our communities, and in the entire world. And that savior is Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.15, Paul writes this. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the image of the invisible God. You see, with Adam, God put his image in him. Jesus is the full image bearer of God. And though Adam lost that image at the fall, Jesus fully retained it. Jesus never compromised his divinity. He never compromised his righteousness and he never lost his glory. And Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. That's crazy. Why? How? Because Jesus is God. 
Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus is the firstborn of creation. Jesus predates. He created Adam. And so what Adam lost was not, well, it's not complete. It's not forever. We're not damned forever. No, Jesus came through his life, death, and resurrection to restore the image of God in us, to restore the dignity of God in us, to restore the design of God in our lives and in the world. Church, would you, would you remember that today? As you go into the world and as you see brokenness, as you see pain, as you experience loss, would you remember this is not the way it's supposed to be and this is not the way it will always be. Jesus will return and he will make all things new. Church, let's hope in him. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for being such a perfect and beautiful designer. We thank you that we can cling to scripture verses that remind us that we were fearfully and wonderfully made. We are amazed that you would endow us, Lord, with your fingerprint, Lord, with, with your image, that you would make us like you. Father, would you forgive us for forgetting our dignity? Lord, would you forgive us for forgive, forgetting the dignity in others and just losing sight of who you are and who you've created us to be? Lord, would you restore what was lost? We pray this. We pray that right now, in our church, in our lives, in our families, through the bloodshed work of Jesus Christ, we would see you restoring what was lost. And Father, would you, would you lead us into the joy of what it means to live under your design again? Church, before we sing our song of response, would you lift up to God your personal prayer of response? Maybe you're in a season of self-loathing. Maybe you're in a season of just great selfishness where you care not for others. Maybe you're in a season of great rebellion, not living for God, not relating to him, but completely living for yourself. Would you take a moment? Would you repent? And would you look to Jesus Christ as the only one that can restore you, that can renew you, that can bring you back to enjoy the fullness of being created in God's image? Would you pray? and let's worship him together.